Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. This podcast contains content which may be upsetting or triggering to some listeners. Please check the show notes for resources should you need to reach out to someone. One of the first things I did was show him the photograph of, of him and, and the little girl. And I'll never forget his reaction to it. He looked at me and says, that doesn't bother me. So there's, there's a child or children missing. It's very clear that he was not capable of actually true love and loving a child. We were kids. It's his fault. He did this. When I looked at the picture and, and saw what, what we had, it added a, a more depth to the horror of the case. That was the end goal, for her to, to have an open door but never walk out. I had so many questions. We won't ever have all the answers, but if we can get any positive out of it, that's all that matters. I think to this day, I'm still like, you know, who was she? Where did she come from? This is a story about a very smart, very capable girl who was under a monster's complete control. And despite having many different names, she never really knew who she was. Hi. I'm Sky Borgman, director of the Netflix documentary Girl in the Picture. While making the film, I discovered how many questions I still had about this young woman's life. I wanted to understand how she became the person she was, how she survived, and how she lived. We've built this podcast a little differently from a typical film companion show. We're releasing the first couple episodes before the film comes out on Netflix. But it won't matter if you listen to the podcast first or watch the film first. Either way, you'll find that here, we're just going deeper into the story of what happened to this young woman 
and why it would take several agencies decades to solve the mystery. This is the Girl in the Picture podcast. Sharon Marshall could have been anything she wanted to be. She had so much inner strength, and she had to have it. I mean, she was smart enough to survive, and she had to be smart in order to be where she was. I'm sorry. She had so much potential. She had something to offer the world. She really had a gift. And she was such a good person. And so smart and so sweet. It was January. 1984, when 15-year-old Sharon Marshall and her father Warren walked into Forest Park High School on the southern fringe of Atlanta. It was Sharon's fourth school in a year, and Warren told the staff they'd moved around a lot since her mom had died of cancer. She had past report cards filled with mostly A's and an IQ of 132. Teachers found Sharon quiet but confident, and despite the loss of her mom, and her constant moving around with her single dad, she seemed to be thriving. I spoke with Sherry, one of the first friends Sharon made there. It was just your regular high school, loud hallways, crazy kids. And I just remember her, you know, coming into the gifted program and they came in and introduced her and um, all the boys went crazy and, you know. She was very, very smart, and she was going to be an aerospace engineer. There was no, there was no, oh, I might want to be this or I might want to be that. That was what she was going to do. We were the um, Ally Sheedy of the Breakfast Club kind of people. We weren't really all that popular. We were the gifted kids. You know, the gifted kids are not necessarily usually the popular ones. <laughs> You know, she she always picked up on people who might have been sad or not people didn't pay attention to, and she would pay attention to them to make them feel better. She was just very cheerful, smiled all the time. Um, she was just a happy person. She hung out with Ray, but she really couldn't hang out a lot because she had to be home after school, so... Whatever hanging out was happening was happening at school. I think a lot of people thought that Sharon and I were dating because uh, she would wear my jacket. And, you know, she would always hug me in the hallway and hold my hand. When I met her, I was probably at one of my lowest points. Life at Forest Park for someone like me was was hard and I'll, I'll tell you why. It's because um, I was very, very petite, and 
I guess you could say I, I might have been a little, if, you know, uh, feminine, even though I, I wasn't trying to be. And um, she would hear people in the hallway that would call me fag or gay ray. And she was, she was a short girl. But she would get in their faces and she would, she would say, say things and take up for me. And those, those people would leave me alone afterwards. I could have, I could have very easily committed suicide or I could have very easily have, have dropped high school to get away from the harassment. And then where would I be? To me, she was an angel that came at one of my darkest times. During the summer of 84, Sharon went off to student council camp where she met Jenny. She lived just outside of town. I was on the student council for my ninth grade year and we, they sent us to summer camp at Berry College. Um, Sharon was in my group and I don't know, it was just instant hit it off. Like I felt like from the first day I had known her my whole life. And um, she told me that her mother was killed um, in a car accident, that she was hit by a car on a bridge and died when she was in the second grade. There were different stories of how Sharon's mom died. And with Jenny attending a different school, no one spoke about it or questioned it. Why would they? We didn't exchange numbers when we left, but I looked in the directory and I found her name and number. I was like, oh my God, there she is, you know? So I called. And when I called, um, she picked up the phone. You know, she said, hello. I said, Sharon, hey, it's Jenny. And she's like, oh my God, how did you get my number? I said, it was in the directory. And she said, you can't, you can't call here. And I said, what? Why? She said, my dad doesn't allow me to use the phone. And then he, I could hear him screaming in the background, who's on the phone? And she's like, oh, it's a girl from Canada. How did you, did you give her the number? I mean, just screaming at her. Did you give her that number? How did she get the number? She's like, daddy, no, it was in the thing. And then the phone hung up. And I sat there like shocked because this did not sound like the same girl that I had been at camp with. And then that was my first experience with Warren Marshall. Even though Jenny felt weird about the way Warren and Sharon were on the phone that day, she knew they didn't have the easiest home life. I thought, well, you know, this is just a working dad who's doing the best he can. You know, it seemed like her rules were very, very, very strict. She would always tell me, when, when daddy comes home, I have to give him a back massage. I have to sit down with him and we have to go over the bills. We have to pay the bills. I have to cook dinner. I have to have the, the, the house clean. I have to get my homework done. Um, she was, you know, it was like she was the little wife. And I just thought she was doing the best she could with her mom being gone. I would go over to her house and we would stay outside. She was always saying that, that her dad was, you know, was napping because he works real hard and he works, you know, painting houses and, and doing construction work. And um, and she she would say, "I'm tired." And I said, well, "Aren't you not getting any sleep?" And this was this was a moment that is frozen in time in my mind. She goes, "Well, you know, sometimes I have to give my dad back rubs and massages." He comes in in the middle of the night because he's so tired, and um, I have to rub his back and make sure that he's got a massage. And I said, what? <laughs> I recognized that, that something wasn't right. And I asked her, I said, um, is, is your dad 
do we need I said I don't want to mess up our friendship and, I, and you can be honest with me I said Sharon you know that I was molested and is anything not right with, with your dad oh no don't be silly you know that's my dad and she she blew it off I said is, is he you know um, touching you inappropriately or anything and she just she kind of laughed it off she never answered the question and to this day I still remember that she never answered the question she laughed it off and she just hugged me I had to respect him I had to be very careful because I didn't want to lose my friend Without somebody saying, here's how it looks, here are the things to look out for, they don't have the confidence to understand that it's real. Diane Cranley is a sexual abuse survivor and has dedicated her life to abuse prevention. You know, if you see one boundary being broken, okay, you know, maybe no big deal. But if you see a pattern of boundaries being broken, you should suspect that abuse is either already happening or it's going to happen if somebody doesn't intercede. And so when you know what it looks like and you know what the boundaries are and you're seeing these behaviors, you're empowered. One night, her her dad came to pick her up and my mom had just gotten home and she was she was in her police gear with badge, everything, gun, no work. He knocked on the door and we were in the living room. And my mom answered the door, and the look on his face, you could just tell that he was kind of shocked. And he goes, is my daughter here? Is Sharon here? And my mom goes, yeah, you want to come in? He goes, no, I'm fine out here. Get Tell her to get her ass out here, so we got to go. And Sharon left, and my mom goes, that's her father? I go, yeah. And she said, um, I don't want you around him. And I said, why? And she goes, I don't know. He just he just doesn't doesn't give me a good feeling. And that's when I told her about the massage, and she goes, "Well, you know, I can't do anything, and nobody can do anything unless she comes forward and says something. You know that she actually has to say that." The problem is, one person saw one thing, somebody else saw another thing, this person saw something else. Whereas independently, it was just weird or creepy, but together, it's like, "Oh no, something is definitely going wrong here." Despite Sharon's happy facade, she was being sexually abused at home. Some of her friends suspected it, but no one wanted to push her. And although people knew something wasn't right with Warren, they just weren't sure what it was. She didn't have emotional problems that we could tell. She wasn't crying. She wasn't, oh, woe is me. She had a very positive outlook on life. She had very high grades. She read a lot. Looking back, I think Sharon had a lot of little signs of cries for help. Um, I look back, the signs were there. Um, You can wave a red flag all you want, but if you don't realize what a red flag means, you're not going to look for it. It's just going to be part of the scenery. Sometimes, um, you know, we list all these things, you know, look for kids who are depressed or withdrawn and, you know, all these things. And those things are all true, but sometimes um, kids go the other way. And it's like, if I can just make everything perfect in my life, right? If I can put on this facade of perfection, um, then I, then I can get through this. And it is a coping mechanism and it's, it's multiple things. Sometimes it's so that other people don't see the total brokenness 
you know, underneath. Um, and sometimes it's just about control. And so we see that sometimes um, as as their means for coping because they can't control other parts of their life that are so painful. So they can, they, they thrive in the areas that they can control. You know, sometimes people say, well, she was more resilient. I'm not sure that, that that's resilience. <laughs> it may look like it on the surface, right? But, but everything that she was struggling with is still buried below. And so that's a coping mechanism. Thinking about the signs or these cries for help that Jenny mentions. In the 1980s, we just weren't having conversations about what to look out for or how to recognize signs of sexual abuse. And that sort of education we have now on boundaries between adults and children really didn't exist yet. Looking at Sharon's life in retrospect, I wonder how she could stay so positive. And the thing is, we'll never really know. At the time she was working towards a college scholarship and had hopes of studying aerospace engineering and working for NASA. Perhaps her drive to succeed was a coping mechanism. Or maybe being so positive was just who she was. There was a time when Warren's behavior was vague, but now began to escalate, and he started acting out in front of others. Sharon told her dad that Lynn was acting in shows and had done some commercials. And Sharon showed Lynn photos that her father had taken of her ones that Lynn felt were just way too sexy for a teenager. Then Warren offered to take photos of Lynn and Sharon together. He drove us to a part of Atlanta that I had never been to. It was very seedy. There was a bunch of warehouses. um, And he stopped in front of this warehouse and he, he went inside. He said, I'll be right back. And that's when I saw it. He had a gun with him. And I just kind of looked, and Sharon looked at me, and she goes, what? As he was leaving the car, I said, your dad has a gun. And she goes, oh, that's just protection. Uh, he, he protects me that way. And I go, okay. He came back from the warehouse, and he was very upset. He said, we can't take the pictures today. They got it locked up. When I told my mom that I got the truck with, with him, I, um, I I don't think I, I don't think the roof ever came back down. <laughs> my mother was so angry with me, and she said, "Suppose he would have killed you, I would never know where you were." And I just I just know that she did whatever he told her to do. I mean, to the letter. Whatever he said, do something, she did it. Whatever Warren was planning to do that day, he was using the fact that Lynn trusted Sharon. Edging towards breaking boundaries is a key part of an abuser's process. 
it's really this cyclical process where they're constantly, whether consciously or subconsciously, thinking about all of these aspects and moving every ball forward just slowly but surely. And, and anytime they get, you know, a direct pushback, um, significant pushback from a child, um, you know, they'll slow down or they'll, you know, take a step back and maybe even take that child off their list and, and move on. And, and again, they're testing the waters to see who will and won't tell. Morin didn't just push boundaries with Sharon and her friends. He pushed them with adults, too. Jenny told me about the time when Warren first met her parents. Sharon and her dad came to their house, and almost straight away, he asked Jenny's parents for a loan. Her dad said no, and then later told Jenny that he adored Sharon, but he didn't like her dad. And Warren's weird behavior didn't stop there. Another time, not long after this, Jenny and her parents came home from the mall to find Warren and Sharon inside their house. He'd opened the garage door and just walked in. He was just lying on our sofa, and she's sitting there mortified. She was, I mean, all hunched over like, oh my God, I can't, you know, and she's like, I'm so sorry, I can't. And my mom was like, why is he in our house? Furious. Jenny's dad told her she was never allowed to be alone with Warren or to go to Sharon's house ever again. And, of course, you know, we broke the rule that weekend and went out that weekend. Sharon wanted me to come down so bad. And um, my dad was out of town. My mom said, just this once, I'm going to let you go down and spend the night down there. One night. I'm going to drop you off, you know, mid-afternoon, and I'm going to have you back the next morning, and do not tell your father. I understand now why my dad said no. Um, I never could tell him that I went. He bought us dinner, and we sat, and we just laughed. And I was very nervous around him because I knew how strict he was, and I knew that he had a temper, and I'd heard him yell. So I was really, I was on my best behavior, and I was really kind of timid and everything. But um, but she and I were having fun. I mean, and he seemed that night like he was going to be really cool. I remember right after we ate, we went and got gas, and he said, let's go drive down Stewart Avenue and look at the prostitutes. What? You know, I thought, that's weird. And she's like, we'll just go and we'll just look at them, you know? I was like, that's weird. I think my parents would really like me driving down Stewart Avenue, but okay, you know. Perpetrators tend to be ones that allow kids to get away with a lot of things. So when we start to see people who allow, you know, don't have good boundaries with kids, right? And they let them break rules. Um, any way that they can get the child complicit in it so that the child's thinking, if I tell, I'm going to get in trouble because I did X, Y, Z, or I wasn't supposed to. Uh, and it kind of comes into creating some level of complicity. So um, at some point they want the kids to break the rules or break the law or whatever it may be with them. Warren had been chipping away at these boundaries with Jenny all evening. He'd even become the cool dad. And Jenny was about to learn that Sharon often did things that teenagers were not supposed to be doing. He said, I'm going to take y'all back to the house, let you get ready, and I'm going to take y'all dancing tonight. And I remember when we were changing, um, um, she pulled open one of her drawers and pulled out all this 
very, very sexy lingerie, negligees and stuff. I said, what in the world? And she said, oh, daddy buys the stuff for me and lets me have it. I said, oh my God, these are beautiful, but oh, hello, you know, why do you have this? So we went out, um, we left back out and he took us to a bar. Um, we were 15, 16 years old. And he took us into this bar that looked like a truck stop bar. I said, you know, we, we're kids, we can't go in there as a bar. And she said, no, with, you know, daddy knows the owner and he lets us come in there. So she's like, I just like to go in there and, and dance, you know, and Sharon loved to dance. And I mean, she, she was, very sexy when she danced. I mean, her way she moved her body and everything. So we go in there and there are all these truck driver looking dudes everywhere and a dance floor, nobody, no girls, no females. And her father sat at the bar for a little bit. And then he said, I'm gonna leave you guys here and I'll come back in a couple of hours and get you. Y'all stay here and dance. And um, there are all these men just watching us. So he came back about two hours later and picked us up. Nobody approached us, nobody talked to us, nothing happened. Um, we were just two teenage girls dancing, dancing at a bar, <laughs> you know, it was, the whole situation was not good. But we went back to their house and um, the stuff happened that I never talked about. We were starting to change to get ready for bed and getting our pajamas on. I had a sleeping bag and a pillow. And um, he came in with a gun. And he just, and he, to scare us. And he said, he walked and he, he opened. They didn't have doors in their house. They had curtains, there were no doors. And he walked in with a gun. And he pointed at us and he said, what are y'all doing? I mean, screamed at the top of his lungs. I screamed. And I, we only had underwear on. We had, we were just changing. We, I didn't have clothes on. I grabbed everything to hold up. And he starts laughing, maniacal, evil laugh. And then he says, I'll be back. And he walked out. And I looked at Sharon and she, she just laughed. And she said, oh, daddy's just being silly. And I was like, I don't have, you know, trying to change here, you know? So he changed and then he came back. And he still had the gun. And he ordered me to lay down on the floor on the sleeping bag and put a pillow on my head. And I did. And he raped her at gunpoint. And I was in the room. And we didn't talk after that. He got up and he left. And the next morning I sat up and I was just in shock and my mom was coming and I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And she came over and she gave me a big hug. And she said, Daddy's just like that. She looked at me and she said, I'm okay. Just let it go. Just let it go. And then my mom came and got me. And I never talked about it after that. And I never went back. I was never alone again. I never rode with them anywhere. I never, ever, ever after that. 
Jenny and Sharon stayed friends, and they talked on the phone occasionally. But after this, they stopped seeing each other as much as they did before. Looking back now, Jenny recognizes that she mentally fell apart. And by senior year, Sharon had changed too. She wasn't the demure girl her friends had met just a couple of years before. You could tell if she had a rough night because her makeup would not be really put on right. Her hair would be kind of messy. And she would be wearing clothes that were really inappropriate. Something was just, something wasn't right. It, it just really wasn't right. I didn't, you know, really realize till later, you know, that probably he had her, you know, time occupied with nefarious things. Looking back now, that, that was, you know, he had friends that he would bring over. And she talked about, oh, daddy has friends over. Yeah, I gotta go, you know. In her senior year, Sharon found out she'd been accepted into the aerospace engineering program at Georgia Tech on a full scholarship. That dream she had was finally becoming real. A shot at independence and a chance at a life that Warren could not control. Warren had extended this control into all of Sharon's relationships. Boyfriends during high school all dealt with him chaperoning them on dates or sitting outside in his car, wherever they were. Wherever Sharon was, so was Warren. But then she started dating Curtis, and he was the first person in Sharon's life to really stand up to Warren. I do remember that I told her her father was a fucking nut job and that I would love to take her away from him. She's a sweetheart, yeah. Very friendly and uh, just trying to be social like other people. We just ended up talking. Um, her and I went to the senior prom together. That year, something happened that would change their lives. She was pregnant. She told me I was a father. Um, and I would do anything for her, so I was with her. She hid it for a long time. Um, at, at, at a certain point, we knew, but it wasn't something we necessarily talked about. Teen pregnancy was not really a thing we talked about back then. There were whispers in the hallways. You know, it was a hush-hush kind of thing. And it was obvious that she was, but we didn't say that. When Warren found out Sharon was pregnant, he went ballistic. A month or so beforehand, Warren had taken out a full-page announcement in Sharon's high school yearbook, congratulating her on her scholarship. Now he wouldn't even let her go to graduation or to Georgia Tech. So the last time I saw Sharon was at graduation. I saw her at um, Terra Stadium where we graduated, but I do not recall her walking on the stage. I remember seeing her very pregnant in the parking lot. Warren told Sharon they were moving to Arizona and Curtis went with them. I placed an ad for all of my stuff 
And I sold everything I had to give us money to go to Phoenix. Sharon and Jenny hadn't seen each other for a while. And the last time they spoke by phone, they'd squealed with excitement about Sharon's scholarship. So when Sharon called Jenny and confided that she was pregnant, moving to Arizona and not going to Georgia Tech, Jenny had a hard time reconciling it all. When I found out that her father wouldn't let her go and how hard she had worked to get there, and he said no. You know, when she found out she couldn't go, I was like, well, we'll just hang out together. I won't go to college either. And she said, no, I want you to go to college. Sharon, Warren, and Curtis arrived in Phoenix in June of 86, where they rented an apartment. Curtis had no idea that Warren and Sharon had ever been to Phoenix, let alone lived there before they moved to Georgia. They never told him. And he didn't know that five years earlier, in 1981, when Sharon was 12, Warren had registered a driver's license in the exact same block they'd just moved to. After they settled, Sharon called Lynn to give him her news. When I talked to her, she said that she wasn't going to have a baby. And um, I didn't know about that. (laughs) And I told her to please stay in touch with me because I'll write you letters every day. And um, I never got an address. You know, and I never heard from her again. She was pregnant getting bigger. I would work 10, 12 hours a day, go home. He'd sleep on the couch. Curtis started working to support Sharon and Warren. He says he didn't mind because he just was so focused on looking after Sharon and their unborn baby. But one day, he came home to find a man and a woman in the apartment. I was like, what's going on here? So she took me into a bedroom our bedroom, and she proceeded to tell me the child's not yours. These are people from an adoption agency. Uh, Warren had talked her into giving the baby up for adoption. It was a hard moment. And then I was furious. I just worked a long day. I got home. I was mad. Very mad um, that she lied to me. I was stupid and ignorant thinking she was telling me the truth then. I got very mad and I threatened both of them and told them both to get out of my apartment. Or I'd kill them both. I cried, she cried. I was so angry and upset and hurt. I mean, it devastated me. But I remember her bawling, I remember her crying and her apologizing. And my last moments with her, I was just very angry because they lied to me. I never thought in a million freaking years of what the actual truth was. A heavily pregnant Sharon took the bus from Phoenix to Georgia to visit Jenny and her family. When it came time to leave, she broke down, begging Jenny's mom to let her stay and not send her back to Arizona. Jenny's mom said they really couldn't take her in without Warren's approval. Sharon was still under 18. Sharon called her father and he said no. She had to come straight home. 
Warren and Sharon moved to Mesa and Sharon's baby, a boy, was adopted. Jenny received a letter from Sharon saying that her father had found a perfect couple from Texas to take the baby. Sharon started waitressing in the Marriott by Phoenix Airport and soon met a new guy, Greg. Like all her boyfriends before, he was smitten with Sharon and he steered well clear of Warren. Sharon was careful what she shared with Greg. She told him that she deferred her scholarship to Georgia Tech, but she never told him that she had recently given up a baby for adoption. Greg arrived at work one day to find Sharon gone. She left a note for him saying that she needed to move away. Months later, she reappeared at work, acting as if she'd never left, only to disappear again. This time, though, there wasn't a note, and she wouldn't be back. Just like Curtis, Greg would never see Sharon again. In the fall of 87, while on the road, Sharon called Jenny. She and Warren had to leave Arizona, and they were headed to Florida to make a fresh start. She said, hey, pregnant again, having another one. I'm like, oh my God. She's like, but daddy's going to let me keep this one. His name's Michael. And um, she's like, you know, I love him. Coming up on episode two of Girl in the Picture. I heard on the radio about the kidnapping of a little boy. We were just trying to find out who this guy was and how do we run him down. Michael was in real trouble. I knew that he was a monster. There's nothing could be good about this. And it just kept getting worse and kept getting worse and kept getting worse. She's like, next time I see you, you know, we'll, we'll go to a church, we'll do something, make it official, and you'll be his godmother. But, you know, we, we never got to that. Girl in the Picture podcast is brought to you by Netflix and Main Event Media. Narrated by me, Sky Borgman. Written and produced by Anna Priestland. Executive produced by Emily Bond and Jimmy Fox for Main Event Media, me, Sky Borgman, and Matt Birkbeck. Sound edited by Joel Porter. Sound design and mix by Reed Thomas Lawrence. Music composition by Jimmy Stouffer. Based on the books A Beautiful Child and Finding Sharon by Matt Birkbeck. <laughs>